Aloha, this is Catherine Cruz. Thanks for joining us here on The Conversation, Hawaii Talks. It's Thursday, December 21st. Today we hear from Governor Josh Green uh, about housing for Maui's displaced families and a possible moratorium on short-term rentals to make that happen. We also talk about recent developments. Former Honolulu Mayor Mufi Hanneman takes the helm at his first Hawaii Tourism Authority meeting as board chair. And veteran lawmaker John Mizuno is to take over as the state's homeless coordinator. We continue to look uh, at environmental research related to recovery in Maui and efforts to monitor coastal waters. And we'll talk to a Polynesian mural artist who found a connection halfway around the world in Palestine. Tune to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. At this hour, the Hawaii Tourism Authority is meeting. The board is to vote on its budget, which includes a marketing plan for Maui's recovery. We talked to Governor Josh Green this morning about this and about his priority for Maui's recovery, which is housing. Hotel workers rallied yesterday afternoon for permanent housing not far from where homeless families are set up on the beach under the banner Fishing for Housing. Here's Green. This is a work in progress, and it's a dynamic one at that. The, uh, the people who are protesting are in lockstep with me, which is to say uh, if we don't get about 3,000 volunteers to come up and accept full compensation for their long-term rental option, which is shifting short-term rentals over to long-term rentals, and the tax break that the mayor's team and the council passed, if we don't get 3,000 units, then I will, in the early part of January, roll out the moratorium. Hopefully it won't come to that because individuals will be made whole uh, if they do make this shift from short-term rentals to long-term rentals. And I want to tell people, if they want to be a part of this program, they should send an email to MauiHousing2024 at FEMA.DHS.gov. That's MauiHousing2024 at FEMA.DHS.gov. And it's just going to be a great program. But what has definitely become clear to all of us, whether it's individuals who have been doing the Fishing for Housing protest or our administration, is that you've got 27,000 short-term rentals on the uh, island of Maui alone, that means there's just not enough housing for working people and local people. So it's got to be done, and I'm hopeful it won't come to that. Uh, But I'm ready to pull the trigger if need be. And that 27,000 number, I mean, that includes timeshares too, though, right? It does. So timeshares are kind of the lowest of our concerns because timeshares are a little bit more, I don't know, familiar uh, with local people traveling here a lot. It's it's a different market, really. But suffice it to say, there's just, you know, there's so many thousands of short-term rentals that right now are about 350% more expensive than a regular rental. In other words, if you have a house and you're renting to a local person, you might be getting $4,000 a month. The short-term rentals are 350% of that. They're like 14000 a month. And that's just not going to work. It's not consistent with having enough housing for us in Maui or across our state. So we have to work on this and reform this problem. And the counties have been doing some good work on that. But 
it's kind of come to a head, and it certainly came to a head when we lost 3,000 homes, or actually 3,813 structures were destroyed during the fire. Today, the uh, Hawaii Tourism Authority meets. It's the first meeting for Mufi Hanneman as board chair. Are you on the same page with him as far as, you know, what the Maui recovery a marketing plan is going to look like? I am. You know, I don't micromanage the HTA. You know, my main direct contact on economic development on a day-to-day basis is my director, Jimmy Tokioka, who's been just fantastic uh, at DBED. But the Tourism Authority provides some good, necessary kind of outside input and industry input, and that helps us. You know, it helps balance out our recommendations. I did read through their proposal. We do have to promote Maui more in a smart way. And as you know, going into the fire, we are already moving away from pure marketing to also management of tourism. And that's where we have a strong contract with CNHA, great partnership with them. And not, uh, not coincidentally, they're really stepping up also. And, and today they will be launching an expansion of the host family program. Uh, their website is kakoomaui.com. And that helps us also not just with the tourism work that they're doing, but CNHA is also doing housing work. So everyone's working together, but there's a lot of work to do, and that's why it's good to have advisory councils. As we you know, move ahead, I mean, I know HTA's got to also deal with their budget, and, and that is going to take some work, but uh, you know, I understand that there was some friction between uh, Jimmy Tokyoka and V. Hanneman at the last meeting. We're not sure what to make of that and what that means going forward. I don't do drama, so uh, you guys can take that up elsewhere with them. And so as far as then this big push to get the housing, are you concerned at all that, that a moratorium, you know, could trigger legal challenges? Well, that's just the world, you know. I rolled out a, a very direct plan to build more housing in the state of Hawaii with our emergency housing task force and the emergency proclamation, and I got sued, and we did compromise. And just the other day, we launched and approved our first program unanimously, including with support from some of the individuals that had concerns like Sierra Club. So that was great. I'm so grateful to them for voting on that and voting favorably, and it's good to see partnerships. So you can see sometimes it takes a little bit of a shot across the bow and then a little compromise to come together. You know, I had even heard from some of my dear friends and longstanding supporters that they were worried that I was at odds with part of the environmental community. Truth be told, I wasn't at odds. I've just been trying to solve problems that have reached the level of a really serious emergency. And housing is one, and we had to litigate a little bit, and we're now moving forward. And it may very well be that I have to take some really strong action regarding short-term rentals to, you know, kind of serve as a catalyst to get solutions going. I've learned after a year as governor that one of the responsibilities of the governor is to say things directly and clearly and take a really deliberate position and then let things shape themselves around that to the solution. And look, it's obvious. We don't have enough housing for the fire victims and we don't have enough housing for everyone else on Maui, yet we have people making a hundred grand a year or more off of short-term rentals and Airbnb. Something's got to give. I'll do my best to make it a sensible kind of gradual solution, but in the immediate moment, we need people to step up. And to be fair, those guys are going to lose in court because this is not a taking. This is basically saying, like when we had the floods on Kauai in 2018, we need housing and we're going to keep you whole. We're going to make people whole offering significant money plus tax breaks so that we can do what is necessary. This is the role of government sometimes to help out when people are down. 
and some resources will go to that. Uh, also, we have great partners. As you know, a lot of this program will pay, two-thirds of it basically will be paid by the federal government and FEMA, which is in- enormously helpful, and I'm appreciative of them. And another large hunk of this money will be paid for through philanthropy because the Hawaii Community Foundation is stepping up with us as partners, too. So we'll roll out the full plan right after uh, January 1st so people can see exactly where money is dedicated, whether it's to the rentals or to actually building units. But it's an all-hands-on-deck solution. So let me run them down again. State, county, FEMA, and CNHA, plus the help of Hawaii Community Foundation. And then finally, you see that there's just this opportunity for short-term rental owners to also step in as partners. I hope everyone will do it. It is obviously a need. And we can solve these problems if we work together. Uh, I just hope to not have to go through the courts and, and win in the courts on this matter. What have the reports been from the field? You know, we did feature um, what FEMA was doing and DHS for the uh, families that uh, didn't uh, qualify for FEMA assistance. You know, trying to get the word out to get some of these property owners to step up in Kokua. But has it been slow? What's the feedback? It's speeding up now, actually. The number apparently is over 300 now, up from just dozens. And today is their big day on Maui. Today is a day where they're having kind of a uh, an all-hands-on-deck little summit, basically, and they already had 500 reser- uh, reservations or registrations to come there as of this morning. So that's a lot of owners. And then those are kind of like the owners that can, from the private sector, help. They can offer their unit. We will pay them you know, their going rate, essentially, and that will help. We'll get a one-year lease with two six-month re-ups from that contract. In addition to that, the, mention, the program you mentioned, the DHS program, Department of Human Services program, we're working directly with Airbnb, and I have uh, high hopes for that program because they already, for example, people don't know this maybe, and we should give them credit, gave us two months of free Airbnbs, free, period, to many um, hundreds of people that would otherwise have been in hotel rooms. So really everyone is doing their best right now, and my request is if you're out there and listening, you have any contact to anyone who has a home or a condo on Maui, please have them sign into one of these programs. And the easiest one right now is, again, Maui Housing 2024 at fema.dhs.gov. That, that will take them right into the FEMA program. We will make sure that their property is well taken care of, and they will help a family that's been otherwise displaced. And this would be the greatest gift people could give if we're going to do kind of the hybrid uh, Christmas, Hanukkah, New Year's celebration for people. That was Governor Josh Green, who we talked to earlier this morning. We'll continue our conversation with him right after a short break. Support for HPR comes from the Stephen Inglis Project, presenting Hawaii Winterland, a tour celebrating the music of the Grateful Dead, December 30th and 31st in Kihei and Honolulu. Tickets at rootsmusichawaii.com. An Arab and Israeli writer have developed an unexpected friendship. Now, we've never actually met and we've never actually spoken. We write long letters to each other. 
it's, uh, it's very touching. They've never actually met or spoken until now. I'm Deborah Becker. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally based customer care team committed to problem solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. Governor Josh Green just announced the appointment of State Representative John Mizuno as the state's homeless coordinator. The veteran lawmaker takes the helm from James Koshiba, uh, who the governor praised for putting in the structure for the Kauhali homeless shelters. Here's Green. Incredible thanks to James Koshiba, who gave us a fantastic year of his professional life to set up our Kauhali program and also what was the and is the emergency proclamation on on homelessness, which we're still using for Kauhale, and John and I will use that together with our team. Uh, in addition to that, the community Kauhale process has begun, which will be an opportunity for churches and nonprofits if they want to start a Kauhale, just like we demonstrated right across from Queens in my house. We'll be able to do that with them, and we will uh, very likely give them the Kauhale units for free. We'll pay for them and install them, and a grant is my guess to help run it with social work, you know, a version of the medical Kauhale. You know, this was a test that we had promised the Department of Health that this would be temporary just up through the new year because they have needs for their space. Don't be surprised if I come back over the top next year and, again, retrofit something here in the uh, urban core. Uh, I'll choose the, the location with all of the community and partners. I don't think it will be right in the exact same spot, but we have several state properties and departments that could you know, take on the responsibility with us for a year, just the space. So it, it was really great. That Cal Hall is being moved over to Middle Street, which is going to be a large one. It's going to ultimately be over 50 units. We have lots of other Cal Hall that are going to come up. We will very likely exceed our goal of more than 12 Cal Hall statewide uh, in 2024. We'll share maps with people so they can see it, but there are several on Oahu. There are at least four that are going to be on Big Island, it looks like. Two on Maui, one already is operational, as you know, with 146 people that were displaced because of the fire, and they were homeless, but they were displaced from the region. And then we're hoping even for uh, two on Kauai. So it's a program that over time will, in my estimation, decrease unsheltered homelessness by half, which means more than 2,000 people getting tiny home or kauhale that they can live in. And don't be surprised if the surprise positive story of the year coming up 2024 is community kauhale, because I know that that is in John's heart. Uh, John Mizuno and I have been friends since 2000, 2004 when I got elected. He was uh, working as a committee clerk for two years and then became a representative. And then he was my, um, my vice chair of the health committee. So we go way back, we have the same ideals, and he knows what we're after. Plus, he was even the sponsor of the Ohana Zone bill, which passed in his law right now. So he's a great guy to carry the mantle going forward on our homeless goals. And as long as I'm governor, this is going to be our greatest social both initiative, challenge, and mission. That's where we're headed for the next year. Do you think we're making some headway with our efforts to deal with those mentally ill who are living on the streets? Uh, yes, but it's always uh, three steps forward, two steps back, honestly, because 
we are getting more services, but then something happens at the state hospital that's tragic and it's harder to get people into mental health care. Uh, then we get more people over to the respite facility and we realize that you know another group of people have refused to go and accept care, so we have to use the ACT treatment law more effectively. So it's never easy, if I can be blunt as a physician, these are the hardest uh, healthcare concerns to provide care for because people are really resistant to treatment and help. But we'll always do what we can. One thing I've asked uh, John Mizuno to do, I've asked him to really augment his, his street team of social workers and healthcare providers in the next two years so that we're actually offering additional support right there on the spot because as we build these Kauhale, we want people to know that we will give them the roof over their head. And then, of course, they can get the health care to the best of our ability. But it's going to be a really big lift because society has been challenged more and more by the damage that methamphetamine does to people and also just years on the street causes like a PTSD disorder. So it's not easy in society, but I'm going to do my very best in the first four years that we've got to cut it down in half. And if everybody pitches in like I've seen them pitch in on Maui, we're going to be successful. That's why I say keep your eyes on this idea of these community Kauhale because over the years I've had many overtures from people that they would put up a Kauhale if only we would provide the, the tiny homes. And my answer is going to be yes. You talk about this being a work in progress. And, you know, I understand that the River of Life folks, you know, while there was resistance about moving from downtown and their whole mission of feeding the homeless, that has turned out to be a major silver lining. Once they moved, they realized they, their outreach could be so much greater, and they were just surprised at, at the turnaround and, and their, their outreach. You know, according to them, it has turned out a really positive thing. Yeah, it is. Uh, these are great organizations, but there are sometimes um, just consequences of good works. And wherever you set up a Kauhale or you set up a place to feed individuals, that does attract other individuals who need help. They're really desperate. We, we saw that the reality was at River of Life, they could do so much good, but also it meant that other people were attracted and that did have an impact very locally. The same thing can be said of the Kauhale across from Queens in my house, that we had you know, obviously 12 people housed, but there was another 50 to 80 people that would come through each day because they needed it. Uh, we're going to set up a lot more hubs in Evale. We're going to set up a lot more hubs across the state so that we spread out the services that we're giving. So you'll see, in general, more manageable challenges and less impact on on other people that are living collaterally nearby. So it's it's an investment worth making in people and you know, like I said, three steps forward, two steps back, but at least you're still going forward. And you'll you'll notice differences, though there's always going to be a tough case that draws one's attention. Yes. Well, Governor, uh, before I let you go, I know we did have a listener call in with a question for you, uh, and it had to do with fireworks. And I know we just had uh, the big bust uh, uh, this week, but uh, here's what our uh, listener had to say. My name is James Martin, and I live in Pippicale. Governor, you, you know, um, as a physician, the effects of the kind of decibels that fireworks set off affect the nervous system. And I am just dreading every year what happens New Year's Eve here. I think probably all over the island, Shane. I wonder if you could not in some way institute legislation that makes it illegal in the same way drugs are illegal, only I think these are equally harmful. 
can you make, can somebody please put some legislation on the table that makes fireworks illegal and also tax distributors? Thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate that gentleman's comments. He's right. Uh, aerials in someone's backyard are unsafe. I actually treated people in the hospital that had them explode in people's faces before with terrible injuries um, in the ER. Right now, it is illegal to, to light off the big aerials, but people still, you know, they do what they can to get away with it. That's why the combination of penalties and seizing the fireworks is, you know, our current approach. Uh, human nature still has meant that people often do it. Um, and I really would caution everyone, please don't do that because it's not even just the decibels and the nervous system impact. It's also the, the lung impact, the pulmonary impact, because the smoke is really, you know, has a bad effect on people who have lung disease, asthma, COPD. Uh, we need to move towards statewide beautiful firework displays that are controlled at certain venues, and then people can choose to either go to them or not. I mean, that's really what my belief is. And until we I guess probably satisfy that appetite. I'm afraid that we're going to still see people breaking the law and shooting off fireworks. But uh, we should caution everybody, don't shoot off those big fireworks. Uh, you could really get yourself in trouble. And we'll keep working away at it. So I appreciate the gentleman's comments. All right. Well, thank you so much, Governor. I appreciate your time. You bet. Take care. Have okay. a happy holiday. All right. You too. Aloha. That was a conversation we had with Governor Josh Green earlier this morning about his priorities for the Maui recovery as well as his goals for dealing with our homeless crisis. HPR's corporate relations team is growing. We're looking for an experienced media sales professional who is community-minded and loves HPR to join our team as a corporate relations associate. If you excel at new business development, enriching existing relationships, and ensuring client satisfaction, we want to hear from you. Apply by December 31st. Learn more at hawaiipublicradio.org jobs. HPR is celebrating the season with special programming on HPR 1 and HPR 2. See the full lineup at hawaiipublicradio.org slash holiday. Sponsored by Nohea Gallery as a gift to the community. For a reality check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat, the final fuel shipment from the Navy's Red Hill tanks has left our shores. Reporter Christina Gendra joins us to talk more about her story. Hi, Christina. Hi, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so this was really, I guess, more symbolic, right, <laughs> to see this big vessel taken off. Yeah, you know, you wouldn't look at it and, and think anything of it if you just saw this ship leaving Pearl Harbor. It's pretty uh, par for the course, but... Um, it was a really big moment yesterday. Uh, the last five million gallons of fuel uh, left Hawaii from the Red Hill tanks. And for the first time in a long time, those tanks are mostly empty. There's some residual stuff to, to remove, but um, this is really the culmination of many years of community advocacy calling for the removal of fuel from Red Hill. 
Yes, and it took, unfortunately, years uh, before that actually happened and, and the contamination of drinking water. So, you know, sadly, uh, that's what had to happen before this uh, tanker, uh, the, the, these tanks had to be um, drained. Right, right. For so many years, um, community members were saying that the fuel at Red Hill, um, which had been there since the 1940s, was threatening Oahu's aquifer, um, which is located just 100 feet below the tanks. And um, in response, the Navy had always said, no, no, everything's fine. It's safe. Um, you know, you should trust us, even though leaks had occurred, including a big one in 2014. Um, they said, that that was just a fluke, um, things are better now, we're modernizing, all of these arguments. Um, and then of course in 2021, there were two back-to-back -back catastrophic leaks at Red Hill that resulted in the contamination of the drinking water around Pearl Harbor. Um, thousands of people got sick and continue to be sick today. And um, even in the face of that though, the Defense Department still was hoping to keep Red Hill open, but there was really an unprecedented community uproar and that got uh, local and state and federal politicians attention and that may have made the difference. Yeah, well, you know, uh, your story talks about how uh, Vice Admiral John Wade said he was relieved uh, to see this ship taking off because he had the mission of safely, safely draining all those tanks and everybody was worried that there would be another leak or some other uh, catastrophic event. Right. He had a really big job and I think he um, is rightfully relieved at this point to have removed the vast majority of the 104 million gallons. Um, I don't think they'd ever like moved so much fuel through the pipelines as they did, but they had a lot of people on it. There was a lot of focus, monitoring things very carefully, and um, they were able to do it with without spilling much. I think they reported about three gallons, um, but that was captured, they say. So um, there shouldn't be any environmental contamination from, from the activities um, of Wade's team, uh, although there was a spill of firefighting foam last year. Well, I'm sure that relief was shared uh, by, you know, Ernie Lau, the Board of Water Supply's chief engineer, as well as with the many folks who had worked with the Sierra Club who were calling for the removal of these, uh, of, the t of the fuel from these tanks. Uh, but of course, you know, th the story's not over, right? There's still some um, of the sludge, there's still some stuff in the um, pipes, in the low point, so all that has to be addressed right. as well. Exactly, yes, there's 64,000 gallons of residual fuel, so it's not in the tanks per se, but in the nooks and crannies of the pipelines. So most of that um, Wade's team will drain, and then the rest will have to be, basically they're busting open pipes um, to get to, to the really hard to reach areas. And then there's sludge in the tanks, and then the firefighting chemicals as well. So um, the military says all of that should be gone by 2027, so it's gonna take longer this next phase um, but the whole facility should be closed by 2027. Right and still lots of uh, uncertainty about what happens to all those tanks if they'll be reused and repurposed in some other fashion uh, but and then also the the cleanup uh, of uh, any residual stuff that's in our aquifer. Exactly yeah there's still a long road ahead we don't know what the tanks will be used for but the military has said repeatedly it will not be used for fuel. Yeah, well, thank goodness this phase is over. But thanks so much, Christina. Thank you.
That was reporter Christina Jedra with today's Reality Check. You can read her story at civilbeat.org. Aloha is a reef biologist who lives in Maui and commutes to the University of Hawaii's Manoa campus. She's one of many researchers who are helping in the recovery of the Maui wildfires. We've been highlighting those studies and efforts by many in the academic community this week as we look at the unprecedented impacts of the wildfires on coastal water quality. Here's Kealoha. So I'm part of a team of UH Manoa researchers. Um, so there's myself, Nicholas Hako, and Craig Nelson, who are also in the Department of Oceanography, and Eileen Neely, she's with Hawaii Sea Grant, and we all kind of have different expertise related to oceans. So together, um, we're monitoring water quality and coral reef ecosystem health in response to the Lahaina fires. Um, and so we mobilized pretty quickly after the fires to write a couple of research proposals to get funding um, to cover this work for the next year. And so, you know, the way I understand it, you know, a a lot of data has to be preserved, you know, immediately after um, this event. And so that's what you've been doing is collecting data? Exactly. So you have to mobilize really quickly in in a kind of catastrophic event like this because the data is so important for human health and, and ecosystem health. And so uh, I think we started, our first sampling was in early October, I believe. Um, and since then we've had several kind of ca- um, sampling campaigns um, where we collect water quality samples along the shoreline. And we also have deployed about 20 instruments um, across West Maui to also collect more like high um, high resolution data, so at um, high temporal resolution, so every ten minutes. And so, what types of things are you looking at when it comes to the health of our coral reefs? So we measure the general water quality parameters, uh, you know, like temperature, salinity, oxygen, um, and chlorophyll, um, and then. Craig and Eileen are working on measuring various contaminants that might be associated with fires and burnt material. Um, and Nicholas Hako, he's a metals guy, so he is um, looking at inorganic contaminants like metals, so arsenic, lead, copper, zinc, things like that. And, you know, I'm not real sure how much of that stuff got into the water. You know, we have had a lot of rains recently. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you folks are out there sampling, what, then every day? No, we don't sample every day. But we, we've we collected samples in October and November. And then those were kind of our baseline samples, which aren't really baseline, obviously, because they were after the fires. But then we've collected samples again after this last Kona storm that occurred um, in early December. So those samples will reflect 
you know, potential contaminants that are running off um, the burning zone. Are you seeing anything immediately just on the impact to the coral or the limu or the fish? You know, no, we're now just starting to get the data in. Um, Actually, we started to get the data in this week, but it's just going to take us time to interpret what that data means. I mean, like one sample at one location, one point in time, it doesn't really mean a whole lot, but it's these multiple samples across multiple events that start to kind of paint a picture. So we're starting to get the data in, but we can't really make any conclusive statements about what the data mean yet. This uh, sampling will continue for how long? We are funded to do the work to monitor for the next year. So um, we're going to continue to sample through the next several rain events that we see over this winter and then into spring. And then um, we'll really start to analyze the data towards the summer. What about like the lab costs? I mean, you know, how did it get funded? So right now we're funded by the National Science Foundation. They have a grant called Rapid Grants that are really designed to collect perishable data after severe events such as this. Um, And we're also working with the Department of Health and Hawaii FEMA to monitor for longer term, so over the next year or two. Do we have any sense as to what could be impacted first? I mean, we haven't seen any, like, fish die off or anything like that. No. Yeah, I'm not sure what you're hearing from the community. I I don't know if people are keeping out of the water, you know, off Lahaina, uh, if, like, commercial tours are just kind of pulling back just because of the unknown, the uncertainty. And that's a really good question because as you know, our community and our culture is like very connected to the ocean, right? We swim, we dive, we eat fish from the ocean. And so that's the big question that everybody has is can can we swim? Can we eat the fish? Um, I will say that I, when I'm out in Lahaina conducting sampling, I do see people fishing and I do see people swimming. And there are signs out there that say, you know, enter at your own risk. So I think individual community members are making those decisions based on, you know, whatever they feel comfortable with. But hopefully, yeah, we can get this data out as soon as possible so that our community can make informed decisions. Have you had to deal with anything like this disaster before? I'm not sure if the wildfires just present new challenges. It does. And and so, I mean, you bring up a really good point. This event is really unprecedented in so many ways. Um, And with respect to wildfires and coral reefs, I mean, There have been wildfires near coastal ecosystems, such as uh, Paradise, California. And we have examples of rural fires, um, such as in Guam, which I know that's where you're from. Um, So we know that those fires can lead to enhanced sedimentation to coral reefs, but there has never been, to our knowledge, an urban wildfire adjacent to a coral reef. And so while we can make some guesses, some educated guesses as to what types of impacts we might expect to see, there's really no perfect analogy. And so we're learning as we go. I think because there's so many researchers out there collecting data and there will be this gold mine of information and, and yeah. we can learn so much. Yeah. I mean, that's the silver lining to, to this project, I think, is that the risk to the fire has been multi-sector, right? We have so many partners working on this project to address 
all different types of water quality issues. So not just coastal water quality, but drinking water and groundwater and surface water. And so it's been a really unique way to do research in a way that is really driven by our community. And hopefully this can kind of serve as a model for how research and monitoring should be conducted moving forward. That was Andrea Kealoha, assistant professor at the Department of Oceanography at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Her research is helping in the Maui wildfire recovery efforts. the next fresh air, actor Nicolas Cage. He starred in Moonstruck, Raising Arizona, Leaving Las Vegas, Adaptation, and countless action films. In the new movie, Dream Scenario, he plays a college professor who becomes a star on the internet after he mysteriously appears in the dreams of millions of people. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Dwayne Elgin, author of Choosing Earth, and next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about our collective journey through breakdown to a mature planetary community. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. We spotlighted an effort by the Kuwait community to send jewelry to Israeli refugees this holiday season on our show yesterday. Today we hear a different perspective on the Israel-Hamas conflict through the eyes of a muralist from Tonga. Vai Moana Numetolu is a, a former Hawaii resident who now lives in New York. She studied painting at Yale and has murals in the U.S. and around the world. Murals have historically functioned as artwork that reflects the lives and dreams of ordinary people. That's why the 13 murals that she has painted in the West Bank and Jordan are particularly uh, relevant today. Uh, former HPR producer Stephanie Hahn talked to Nume Tolu about how she found belonging during her time amongst Palestinians. And for clarification, references to Palestine in the interview are references to the West Bank. I always knew that I wanted my art to be for the people, by the people. I did a lot of work around political prisoners, abolition, work here in the United States. And so, of course, I would learn about Palestine and Palestinians and our connections, our international solidarity. Especially after 9-11, my experience from white American experiences was completely different. I'm a brown-skinned Tongan woman, and when I walked around New York, literally 24 hours after 9-11 happened, I was yelled, you know, you stupid Muslim bee, go back to where you come from, you're just a Muslim. For me, <laughs> I'm laughing because I grew up Mormon. I was born and raised in the Mormon church. So when, when I had those experiences right after 9-11, I'm like, who are they talking to? And then I realized that my skin color 
is a crime. My my skin color to some people, how I look, how I appear to them, equates terrorism. And for a young person to experience that, that never leaves your body. That is a sort of trauma that I will never be healed from in a way. The only people that could understand that are black people, brown people, Muslim people. During that time, I was in a performance group that I co-founded called Mahina Movement. Three women, queer women, trans women, black and brown women. A lot of our music is about social justice, liberation, and one of our songs was for Palestine. And so that's how I got to be connected to Palestinian communities and families, activists, leaders, organizers in New York City. And one of those people, her name is Nancy Mansour. She is currently the executive director of Eyewitness Palestine. And she is a co-founder of Existence is Resistance. And since 2010, Existence is Resistance has taken hip-hop artists, musicians, singers to Palestine for two weeks to all over the West Bank. And in 2016, she invited Mahina Movement to come to Palestine. And that was the first time I went to Palestine. And I just fell in love with the land, the people, the air, everything about Palestine. What was the quality of the, the people and the place that drew you in? Um, in order for me to answer that question, I just first have to say my experience of living in the United States. Being a Tongan woman, I am still invisible. I can't get invited to the table when people don't even know that I exist. So that has been my experience my whole life. I'm constantly trying to explain not only my geography, history, culture, of where I come from, of who I am, but bringing my dignity, my existence, my respect for who I am. I'm just speaking a language that people, my experiences, most people are, are higher ups, you can say, are like, what do you mean you don't fit in this box? Fit in this box, black or white, mm-hmm. or you're Latino. Mm-hmm. And it's like, um, no, I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't. That's why I I have such connection to to the queer community because their work really is about get, um, creating a space where there are where they don't fit in the binary. And I feel that for myself, in terms of I don't fit in any type of binary that already exists, my existence is in a whole new possibility. The people of Palestine know in their spirits, in their souls, what it means to live in a world where they don't exist. They know, they live that every day, what it means to create their own existence and to create their their own possibilities of where they can live in dignity, respect, and love for themselves and each other on their own land. And so as a person who longs for that, who who knows that in an instant, you know, I didn't need to intellectualize it. Oh, what is this? I knew it the moment I landed in Palestine, in the air. And 
when I met Palestinians, the whole culture is welcome, welcome to Palestine. And everyone says it, the children on the street, the elderly people, everyone says it to you. They're not like, who are you? What is this? What do you want? What do you need? Of course, they have discernment around the army and around foreigners. They're not stupid. But overall, there is this generosity. There is this welcoming that I've never gotten in the United States. So when I went to Palestine, I got this welcoming. And they can feel it, too. They're like, okay, what is what's what she doing here? What What's going on? They could see and feel my heart. And they invited me into their home. We had, I had dinner, lunch, breakfast. I got to meet all their families, their partners, their husbands, their wives. This isn't an experience that I have in the United States. What was the subject of your murals? You painted over 13 murals in Palestine in places ranging from Jenin, Yabad, Nablus, Buran, Turkarm camp. You painted everywhere. What was the difference in what you were painting, your subject, or how you treated it? You have murals everywhere around the world, New Zealand, Australia, Utah, South Africa, Brooklyn. But you have so many in Palestine, so tell me about this. Palestine is the place that has most of my murals in any place in the world. And I think it's because of the trust and the openness and um, and also the the need and want for that type of ownership. We want to put our liberation on the walls. We want our kids, our families, to paint portraits of themselves of freedom. Right? My murals, especially in the United States, it's. It really is like, okay, how does it look like? Or who are you as an artist? And it has to have a commercial look to it. I feel many murals. Mm. That's why in New York City and in a lot of places, people are like, wow, muralists actually gentrify the community rather than helping the community. Because once those murals go up in New York City, then people are like, oh my gosh, let me get an Instagram photo They just take those resources away from the community rather than having those murals bring resources into that community and make that community thrive. And so in Palestine, when people found out that I was a muralist, oh my goodness, I want a mural here. We need to do this mural here. And again, as a necessity, not as like, oh, we want it to look good. Of course, they aesthetically want their homes and places to look good but it was for we want to show people we own this land we are here we exist so the first mural that i did in janine it was for the freedom theater and it was the prisoners in israel were on a hunger strike and so that mural i depicted three brothers And then I depicted a very famous freedom fighter in in there, too, but their hands, not portraits of them, because they did not want portraits of their faces, but portraits of their hands. And what that mural represents is it starts with a seed, and then that plant grows, and that plant is held by each of those 
brothers and freedom fighters' hands. Because what you hear a lot in Palestine when you when you talk to any kid or pretty much anyone is that they tell you that their dreams are been taken away from them, that they can no longer dream, and that they they hope to be able to have their dreams fulfilled. And so that's what that mural represents: is that they can still have their dream no matter how small that is. But that it still matters and that it can grow into something, into a reality for them. Another mural was at a school in Yabed, which is a village right outside of Janine. It is in Janine proper, the region, and it's at a middle school for young women. And that mural featured portraits of young women. I collaborated with a local Palestinian artist. I did a portrait of one of the teachers because it's important for me to share women and children because I feel like they too are always invisibilized or as you can hear from the numbers, you know, over 60% of the people killed in Gaza are women and children. And that's usually in war, like in Sudan, in Congo, right? It's, In Afghanistan, the population really is on women and children, the impact and the killing. A lot of my murals feature women and their children. And so that's the mural in Yabed. It's all girls, and they all have kafiyas on. And it's a a woman educator, which is so important to me, too, to share that women and young women are educated in Palestine. I mean, they have such a large number of PhDs and um, the U.S. and Western media love to paint a, a picture of Palestinian women or Arab women, um, Muslim women as being controlled and they have no say, they have no voice. Mm-hmm. Like They definitely have say and they definitely have voices and they are definitely educated and powerful. Palestinians are not only fighting for their land, their families, and their homes, but they're fighting for all of us who want to have their own sovereignty and their own say on how to exist in the world. And that was muralist Vaimoana Numetoyu talking about her experience painting murals in the West Bank. We'll have a link to more information on uh, her artwork and music on the conversation page of our website later today. Allowed my soul to shake all over this place, all over this place. Well, our time is up today, but tomorrow we check in with the Peace Institute at the University of Hawaii about what it's offering to ease the discourse around the Israel-Palestine conflict. 
Call our talkback line with your feedback or questions at 808-792-8217 or email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Find the conversation segments on our website or anywhere you tune in for podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation. Thank you.